Welcome to our podcast. I'm John Metaxas, and today we're speaking with David Phillips, director of the Program on Peacebuilding and Rights at Columbia University's Institute for the Study of Human Rights. David, great to be with you, as always. Thank you, John. Likewise. Uh, you have just come back from a visit to Syria, which we're very eager to hear about the facts on the ground, uh, but you're also now hearing of some breaking news in Turkey that hasn't uh, really hit uh, the U.S. media as of uh, today, Wednesday, December 12th. Uh, tell us what President Erdogan has announced. Uh, he's declared war east of the Euphrates River, targeting the Syrian defense forces, which comprise mostly Kurdish units. Uh, it's not surprising that he's ready to go to war with them. He's pledged uh, to destroy the Kurdish militias, whom he believes are terrorists. Part of the problem, however, is there are U.S. special forces on the territory that Erdogan is likely to attack, and that would put the U.S. and Turkey uh, against each other and could risk U.S. casualties. Now, Turkey uh, intervened uh in Syria almost a year ago, in January of this year. Uh, to what extent is this a, a furtherance of that campaign? On January 20th of this year, Turkey uh, attacked um, a peaceful hamlet called Afrin. They did that in response to U.S. plans to establish a border security force involving Kurdish militias. Uh, 58 days of constant aerial assault uh, infantry attacks by the Free Syrian Army, a jihadist group which is aided and abetted uh, by Turkey. And finally, the, her the heroic defenders of Afrin fled with civilians. Uh, 300,000 civilians were forced from their homes, and hundreds of Afrin residents and defenders were killed. It was a real bloodbath. All right. Uh, for those of our listeners who are really not up to speed, perhaps, on events in Syria, this is now all going on in the context of a wider war, a civil war against Syrian President Assad that's been going on there. The Russians have come into it. Lay the land for us. Uh, part of the problem with Syria is the occupation by foreign forces. Uh, there are Russian, Iranian, and now Turkish troops on the ground. Uh, the UN launched a mediation process, but that was usurped uh, by the occupying powers. There's now something called the Astana process that involves uh, the regime, Russia, Iran, and Turkey. The problem in Turkey has been grinding on for years, and there's no end in sight, certainly as long as there are foreign forces occupying its territory. And... Uh from Turkey's perspective, uh, the problem begins with the refugees pouring over the border into Turkey. Is that correct? Uh, yes, and Turkey has provided hospitality to those refugees. But let's keep in mind that the war in Syria is largely a result of Turkey's support to the Sunni Arab extremists. Starting in 2012, when the U.S. didn't intervene post-chemical weapons in Ghouta, Turkey opened something called the Jihadi Highway from San Liorfa to Raqqa, where it provided weapons, money, soldiers, and logistical assistance to these extremist groups that morphed into ISIS. So frankly, none of this would have happened if Turkey hadn't made the decision to support jihadists and throw the full weight of its support behind 
uh, a takeover of the regime in Damascus. And they're being opposed by the uh, Damascus regime, which is Alawite, and uh, their allies are Russia and Iran and also Hezbollah. Is that correct? That's correct. It's a pretty sordid bunch. Uh, when Turkey attacked Afrin, uh, they made a deal with Russia to allow access to the airspace, which was controlled by Russians. So there are no angels in this war. And the U.S., because it failed to intervene in 2012, has essentially uh, ceded authority over the diplomacy to these other powers. And as a result, the civil war is ongoing, and Syria has become a failed state with tragedy touching every life. All right, you've just been there. What have you seen there? I saw a uh, relative oasis of peace and stability with security. In, in what region? I went to a region around Kamishli, which is near the border with Iraqi Kurdistan. It's east of the Euphrates River. Uh, it's a region where there's relative peace and security. Uh, the Syrian uh, forces, Syrian Democratic forces, provide security and stability in the area. There's local governance in this territory called Rojava, uh, which is effective. Local councils that uh, are emblematic of a grassroots approach. There's also a remarkable experiment there in gender equity. Men and women co-chair every agency and department. And environmental sustainability is one of the core principles in North and East Syria. So it's uh, like a kibbutz in Israel when the state was first founded. Everyone is pitching in in service of the collective good and in service of a greater good, which is peace and stability in Syria and the region. How is this uh, situation threatened right now? It's threatened by Turkey. Turkey has said it will attack and invade. Uh, it has warned the U.S. that there could be collateral damage. Now, Turkey is an aggressive, malign power. Its involvement in Syria has worsened the civil war. Uh, the U.S. needs to recognize that Turkey is not an ally. In fact, under Erdogan and his dictatorship, it's become a strategic adversary. And there's no chance for peace in Syria as long as Turkey and other foreign powers are there carving up the country. If the U.S. wants to show some diplomatic muscle, it needs to respond to Erdogan's threat. And there is an easy response to establish a no-fly zone over parts of northern Syria that would allow the Kurds to fight on the ground against the jihadists and their Turkish patrons. Of course, if we establish a no-fly zone, Turkey's going to react to that. They'll close in Chirlik Air Force Base in uh, southeastern Syria, southeastern Turkey, excuse me. Uh, so the U.S. is at a pivotal point in its approach to Syria and its relations with Turkey. Are we going to stand with secular pro-Western forces who have been the point of the spear fighting alongside the U.S. against ISIS? Or are we going to align with a malicious authoritarian regime in Ankara, led by President Erdogan, who is a war criminal? 
Where is the U.S. on this? It's hard to say if the Trump administration has a policy or what it will do next. This is pretty predictable given the overall chaos of governance in Washington. We did see a statement last week in congressional testimony from the U.S. Special Envoy to Syria, James Jeffrey. Uh, he said, quote, it's unacceptable for Turkey to be attacking U.S. allies in Syria. Uh, when James Mattis announced the creation of five early warning posts along the Syrian-Turkish border, uh, it was seen as a tripwire to prevent the escalation of violent conflict. Then two days ago, uh, Special Envoy Jeffrey met with Erdogan in Ankara, and immediately after that meeting, Erdogan came out and announced the imminent assault of ter against territories east of the Euphrates. Did Jeffrey give him a green light? Will the U.S. turn a blind eye? Or are we going to stand with our allies in Syria and prevent a genocide? Uh, the next few days will be pivotal. You have uh, written an article in a publication called The Polyturco. Uh, perhaps you can tell us about that publication uh, with the provocative title, Turkey's Crimes in Afrin. And you've uh, used the word genocide. You've uh, used the word uh, Turkification. Tell us about that. So genocide is um, defined by four elements. More than one person died. Th those persons belong to a specific ethnic, racial, or religious group. There was a pattern to their killing, and the perpetrators knew they would die. So what happened in Afrin with the bombardment and then the attack engineered by Turkey through the Free Syrian Army, its jihadist proxy, meets the definition of genocide. There were crimes against humanity. The, the bombing was deliberately aimed at pushing Afrin residents out of their homes. I interviewed the survivors of the Afrin attack just last week. I spoke with a mother who was fleeing the city with her daughter, hand in hand, and her daughter was hit by a missile and killed. And as the mother, who's a strong woman, explained what happened, she just broke down in tears. There was clearly a systematic campaign of ethnic cleansing to change the demography in Afrin and then to move Arabs into the, the uh, city of Afrin so that Turkey could be partly relieved of its refugee burden and other displaced people in Syria would have a place to go. So Turkey has committed egregious war crimes. It's targeted civilians. There's no doubt that it has committed ethnic cleansing, planned a campaign to change the demography of Afrin. And what we saw there is the tip of the iceberg. If Turkey is allowed to go east to the Euphrates, what happens there will be much worse. And Turkey is targeting uh, Kurdish populations, is that correct? The region is mostly Kurdish, but the reason why it was named Rojava, which in Kurdish means sun setting in the west, to the self-governing territory of North and East Syria is because it's pluralistic and inclusive. The majority of the population is Kurdish, but there are also Arabs and Yazidis and Christians, all of whom participate in these local councils and all of whom get along well. In fact, the conditions that exist in Rojava are a model 
for the kind of decentralization and local governance that can be applied elsewhere in Syria and um, serve as a solution as international mediators work towards ending the civil war. Now, Turkey has a substantial Kurdish ethnic population within Turkey itself, and there's a group called the PKK, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, which has been fighting for Kurdish rights within Turkey. That group is designated a terrorist organization by Turkey, and I believe still by the United States. What is the difference between that group and the YPG, which are the Kurdish fighters in Syria? So we can have a longer discussion about whether the PKK should be designated a foreign terrorist organization, but let me answer your question directly. When you're in northern Syria, you see placards everywhere of Abdullah Öcalan, who is the founder of the PKK. But the Kurds there insist adamantly that the PYD, which is their leading political party, and the PKK have no operational affiliation, no financial or command and control affiliation. Clearly, there is an intellectual and spiritual connection. I didn't realize the extent of that until I was there. But the U.S. government classifies the PKK as an FTO. It does not include the PYD on that list. Part of the reason is U.S. law prohibits security cooperation with groups that are considered terrorist organizations. And we have extensive security cooperation with the PYD and its militia affiliates, the YPG, the People's Protection Forces, and the Women's Protection Forces. And I've, I've met some of the commanders, including the women commanders, they share equal responsibility. In the Battle of Kobani, when the city was attacked by Turkey, 40% of the defenders were actually women. So the U.S. has a legal distinction between the PYD and the PKK, and we cooperate with security assistance providing arms and close air support to the YPG and YPJ, we don't do that with the PKK. Fair to say that the whole Kurdish movement within Turkey had its start in, in, a, in a long period of, uh, of uh, discrimination. Uh, at, for a long time in Turkey, it was illegal to speak the Kurdish language, was it not? Uh, Turkey targeted its mm, citizens of Kurdish origin because they uh, wanted to exercise greater political and cultural rights. Uh, there were draconian measures introduced, and since there was no effective political representation for the Kurds in Turkey, uh, they became a rebel group. I've visited Turkey 40 times or more, and I can tell you that the loyalty towards the PKK among the Kurds is universal. Not everybody subscribes to an armed rebellion, but they admire the PKK for standing up against Turkey's tyranny. Now we see Turkey's tyranny extended elsewhere in the region, and the U.S. should join the victims in opposing it. Where uh, does all this uh, stand in terms of the wider alliances? We've heard so much of uh, 
of uh, Turkey being with the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, on the other side, Saudi Arabia and Egypt, uh, Israel as an ally with them. What wider geopolitical ramifications does this conflict have in that region? So we, we could spend the next hour talking about uh, the answer to your question. Let me just state clearly that the Justice and Development Party, which is President Erdogan's political group, functions like a branch of the Muslim Brotherhood. When the Deputy Prime Minister of Turkey says that women shouldn't be allowed to smile or laugh in public, this is something you would expect from al-Baghdadi, the head of ISIS. So Turkey is so far removed from being an ally and a good NATO member. Because remember, John, NATO isn't just a security alliance. It's a coalition of countries with shared values. And the U.S. and Turkey have diverged so dramatically. If Turkey attacks east of the Euphrates and U.S. forces are caught as collateral damage, that could mark the end of U.S. cooperation with Turkey. The way to prevent that is to announce a no-fly zone so Turkey doesn't feel emboldened. It's time for some principled leadership where the U.S. supports its friends rather than trying to appease its adversaries. You mentioned Incirlik Air Base. Um, it's my understanding the U.S. has several nuclear weapons there. How does that calculate into uh, any reaction the U.S. might take at this time? So I don't know what the nuclear force at Incirlik is today. I do know that we've gradually been moving our capabilities from Incirlik to other facilities in the region. Uh, there's an air base in Greece, which could be uh, a platform for the no-fly zone. Similarly, there's an air base in Cyprus. We have carrier groups in the eastern Mediterranean. I don't know if there are still nuclear weapons at Incirlik, but if there are, we should get them out of there because we don't want Turkey to be seizing them and have an Islamist nuclear weapon. Would that kind of a move be made without the American public knowing about it? Uh, there's, there's little transparency uh, in the Trump administration to its international relations. So would it be made? It surely could. Uh, unfortunately, accountability and ethical standards are not the defining hallmark of this administration. Turkey once had a policy, an official policy, that it called zero problems with neighbors. What happened to that? Ah, uh, it developed a, uh, a policy whereby it had problems with every neighbor. Uh, and the people who were the architects of the zero problems with neighbor neighbors concept got removed from office. Right now, Turkey is an antagonist to all countries in the region. It feels like it can bully countries, including the United States. If Erdogan isn't stopped, he will continue his aggressive, provocative, and confrontational approach. And the region, which is already unstable, will become destabilized further and Turkey will become the vanguard of Islamist provocations. All right, let's try to wrap up the conversation. You've made a very compelling call. Uh, you believe the U.S. should implement a no-fly zone in northern Syria. What should uh, people watching this situation be looking for in terms of developments to understand where we may, we may be going with all of this? 
If Turkey attacks east of the Euphrates and starts killing U.S. allies, that just reshuffles the deck and requires us to rethink our approach to Syria and to our bilateral relations with Turkey. One thing we can't do is stand still and let these events occur around us. The U.S. has to shape the battlefield, needs to shape the negotiating table. That requires a proactive and visionary and principled approach. I'm not sure the Trump administration is up to the job. All right, uh, David, it sounds uh, as if we have uh, fodder for many more conversations, but uh, perhaps we should leave this one here. David Phillips, director of the Program on Peacebuilding and Rights at Columbia University's Institute for the Study of Human Rights. Thanks very much. Thank you, John.